Well, this is, as has been mentioned, the concluding week of our series through the book of Galatians. It's week number 10. If you haven't been keeping count, we have spent, today will be 10 Sundays studying through the six chapters of Galatians. We began way back in the very, very beginning of the summer, first week of June. We've had a few Sundays where we pulled off and done some other things, but mostly every single Sunday we have been thinking through Galatians 1 through six. Now, interestingly, what we have called this series is for freedom. And we've called it that because this is the reason that Paul wrote the book. It was for our freedom. So that we would understand that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free and that we are to live in that freedom. In a very real way, for the Christian, the book of Galatians is our declaration of independence. In fact, I'd love for you to view it that way from now on for the rest of your life. When you open to the book of Galatians, I want you to see it as your declaration of independence. It really is that. And we're going to come to the end of it today, and Paul is going to sign it just like all of the signers of our American Declaration of Independence. Which, by the way, is interesting. Did you know that of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence a couple of hundred years ago, 250 years ago about, um, did you know that the most famous signature on that document is, well, I don't even say it. You know who it is, right? Who's the most famous signature on there? It's the, it's the signature of, yeah, John Hancock. Yeah, you're saying it. Uh, in fact, uh, we understand that that's the most famous signature not because... John Hancock was the most famous signer. He wasn't. But his signature is the most famous signature because it is the most prominent signature. In fact, I brought a picture of it. You know it even without seeing it. John Hancock signed the Declaration of Independence with these great sweeping letters, these lar- this large script you know, somebody said that, uh, that uh, John Hancock said, you know, King George is getting old and his eyesight is not what it used to be. He's having a hard time seeing and I don't want him wondering who signed this thing. And so I don't want him to have to get his looking glass out or squint his eyes. I'm going to sign it so big that he knows exactly where John Hancock stands on the freedom uh, that these colonies are claiming. And, you know, throughout our history, that act of signing that document so in such a, a, a large and grand way has been uh, remembered throughout American history as an act of great courage and, uh, and as an act of deep, deep conviction. Well, in the same way, when you come to Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, which is where our text is going to begin today, what you are reading is... If I could say it this way, it's Paul's John Hancock moment. This is where Paul is essentially signing this document. And he does it in a way that is to be remembered. Let me tell you why I say that. Did you know, by the way, that when you read Paul's letters, they are, of course, Paul's letters in the New Testament, which are the the epistles of Paul, But he did not, we know from his writings that he did not actually pin them. He dictated them. So most of his letters, or most of the content of his letters were actually pinned by one of his helpers or scribes or, or an assistant. But he would dictate them. 
And then Paul would sign the letter at the end in order to authenticate that it was from him. We know this from a number of the New Testament epistles, but most notably we know it from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 17. Listen to what Paul writes in that closing verse of 2 Thessalonians. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting. In other words, this, this last salutation at the end. I write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark of every letter. He says, this is the way that I write. So what we know is that Paul would dictate these letters and then he would sign them at the end. He did the same thing in Galatians. What's different about Galatians, though, is that he does it in a unique way. Look at it, verse number 11. He draws attention to the uniqueness of his signing this particular letter. He says in verse 11, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. You see how much of this I have written with my own hand. Now there's a couple of possibilities of what Paul meant when he said how large a letter. Maybe he's saying, you see what large letters I have used in signing and writing with my own hand. Some people, in fact, many people believe that's exactly what he means. And it would give credence to the fact that Paul's thorn in the flesh might have been poor eyesight. It could very well be that Paul was what we would call legally blind, nearly blind. Part of the reason he didn't write the letters himself, but he would dictate them. And then he would just sign them with these large letters. But he says in verse 11, you see how large I'm writing with my own hand. It would, seen, it would appear to me if it was only talking about large letters, he would have done that all the time. In every letter, they would have been large. It wouldn't have been that unique. The other possibility, though, is that he's not just saying I'm signing with large letters. He's saying, you see how much I'm writing at the end of your letter. Whereas most letters, Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and the others, I just sign it. Bless you. The peace of God be with you. And I sign it. Here, I'm writing more with my own hand. It could be both as well. I tend to believe that what Paul is saying is, I am writing to you with my own hand more content because I am, I am writing my heart to you in this last paragraph. I'm of the persuasion that when verse 11 says, you see how much I'm writing with my own hand, Paul stopped dictating and began writing himself in verse 11, and he wrote the entire last paragraph down through verse number 18. It's his John Hancock moment. He's writing emphatically. It's like if he was texting, it would be all caps. It's like he's underlining his thoughts at the end. In any case, when you read verses 11 through 18, what you find out is that Paul is concluding this important letter uh, with a lot of passion and very emphatically. So we're going to read about it. Uh, these are Paul's concluding comments to the Galatians, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 11. He says, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, those who desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. But they are only doing that lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory 
in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, verse 17 says, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brothers, verse 18 says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And everybody said with Paul, amen, amen. Now to to fully understand the passion with which Paul writes this closing paragraph with his own hand, his, his John Hancock, as he's putting his final thoughts and his signature to this letter, if you're fully going to understand this closing, these closing thoughts, let me take you back and remind you of where Paul began. So turn back a couple of pages to chapter 1, if you will. It's Galatians chapter number 1, and look at verse 6. Just to remind you, because it's been about three months now since we were in this chapter, just to remind you of where he began, chapter 1, verse 6 says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Do you remember we learned in the beginning that Paul begins his letter with very few opening comments and he launches right in to this stern some would say very harsh rebuke of the Galatian believers and the Judaizers, the legalistic opponents of Paul who were trying to put them under this bondage of keeping the law. He says in verse 6, I can't believe it. I can't believe that you're leaving the gospel of grace, the grace of Christ, to go and embrace another gospel. Now, by the way, there are only two gospels, only two gospels. There's a gospel of the grace of Christ and there's the gospel of works. But what Paul would say is that the gospel of works is not a gospel at all. It's a perversion of the gospel because it is in fact not good news to say I have to keep the law and be right in my behavior in order to go to heaven. No, my hope is in the gospel or the grace of Jesus. This is where Paul began. That they were being, these Galatian believers were being put under the bondage of the law And he was trying to free them from that bondage. He was writing this letter as their declaration of independence from the law. You remember what is the the main theology of these legalizers uh, or legalists or these Judaizers. We saw it in Acts chapter 15 in verse 1 where they said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Essentially what they're saying is to a Gentile, if you're going to be a Christian, you must become a Jew first. That's what what they're saying. You must become a Jew, proselytize to Judaism, and then believe in Christ for conversion. That's the message of the Judaizers. And Paul says, no, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You just have to trust in Jesus. You don't have to follow 
the law of Moses. And this is the entirety of, of what Paul says in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. It's the entire message of Galatians uh, is to rebuke this false theology and this ideology of keeping the law. Now, you come to chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul begins to sign off, to wrap up the letter, to conclude his thoughts, and he leaves them with two final, two concluding thoughts. And I want to give you these two concluding thoughts today, and then we're going to be done with this series. All right, so write it down if you're a note taker. He begins by speaking to the legalists, the Judaizers. And he says that you legalists are just empty showmen. That's all you are. You're empty showmen. It's a stinging rebuke. You know what a showman is, don't you? I mean, when we think of a showman, a sh- we, we think of a, of a, of a ring leader, or a, a ring master, I should say, a ring master at a three-ring circus. If you go to a circus, I don't really guess they do a lot of circuses anymore, but if you've been to a circus where there's a three-ring, like Barnum and Bailey's used to be, and the, and the stadium or the, the auditorium is filled with people, and there's so much happening in so many places, you need a... Um, a master of ceremonies, a showman who is going to help you to see in ring number one, all the way from the Sahara, the man-eating lion. Everybody's, ooh, ah, and they're looking in ring one. And while your attention is, is all focused on ring one, they're setting up ring three. And you're looking over here, and then suddenly the, the ring master will say, and then ring number three, and suddenly your attention's over there. And that's his job, is just to show you all the stuff that's happening. It's kind of like a like a carnival crier at a sideshow. Step right up and, and see the, you know, the, the hairiest or, the, or the, the heaviest or the ugliest or the skinniest or the whateverest. You know, it's this crier that says, come on up and see these things. But it's, it's all about the external show. This is a stinging rebuke from Paul. Because he looks at these Judaizers, or he writes to these legalists, and he says, that's all you are. That's all you are, is you're all about the show. Look at verse 12. He says it plainly in verse number 12. All of you who desire to make a fair show in the flesh. All of you who are about making sure that you look good on the outside. That you are impressive. That you are, that you are making a good showing. All you're trying to do is is show how good you are on the outside. Now for the Judaizers, for for the people to whom Paul was writing, to make a good show was all about following the law of Moses. It was all about Gentile men coming to Christ and saying to them, you have to follow the rite of circumcision and then you have to follow the dietary laws and you have to follow all of the ceremonial laws and the high holy days and all of the Jewish laws. You have to follow all of those things so that you will appear to be like us in the way that you live. We remember that he said in verse number 12 that you are constrained, you are forced to be circumcised and forced to follow these laws. It's all an emphasis on the externals. But you know, in religion, an emphasis on the externals was not simply a problem in Paul's day, was it? It's still a problem in our day. It is. 
you can find this emphasis on external behavior rather than a true heart conversion in every Christian tradition, every one of them. Doesn't matter which one. It, it shows up in the, in the pomp and the pageantry of high church Protestantism where it becomes all about, in so many cases, it becomes all about the cathedrals and the, and, the, and the stained glass and the robes and the ceremony. And it mimics, it, mock, or it mimics and impersonates a true experience with God. Very often it's all about the externals. It's not just in the high church uh, world, but it's also in, in the very conservative congregations where there's so many rules to abide by and regulations that must be followed in order to be accepted, relating to all things external, appearance, behavior, Bible translation. And it's not an issue of orthodoxy, it's an issue of conformity so that you look like we want you to look. If y'all tracking with me, say amen, you understand? It's, it's a problem. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. You see this emphasis on the externals in the sacraments of Catholicism. Where these external behaviors, these legalistic requirements are imposed upon people in order to secure their salvation or maintain their salvation. So whether it's Protestantism or Catholicism or very conservative evangelicalism, it's It's there. It's there in the charismatic movements where there's so much of an emphasis on these requirements of ecstatic experiences that conform you with the rest of that body and you then are able externally to demonstrate uh, some relationship with God. It's in every, I could go on and on, but it's in every Christian tradition. We emphasize the outside. Now, by the way, an emphasis on the externals is not only a problem that we face in denominations and in congregations. It's also a problem faced in many families. I want you to hear me carefully. Very often, Christian parents who want their children to be the right kind of kids will totally neglect discipling and shepherding the heart of that child into a deep maturity with Christ and a relationship with Christ and rather focus only on external behaviors, commanding their children to behave in such a way often motivated by protection of the family name. And so I, you better live right as opposed to necessarily be right happens all the time. I have to tell you, I, I, I prayed about this this week when I was thinking about saying this to you and I thought, I hope that was not true in our family as we were raising our kids. I honestly don't think it was, but maybe it was sometimes. And I haven't asked my kids yet. I'm afraid to. <laughs> but we need to be careful when we're raising kids that, we, that we're shepherding their heart and not just conforming their behavior and being concerned about the externals. It's true in individual lives. Maybe it's true in your life. That your greatest concern is not the pleasure of God. Your greatest concern is acceptance among people. What will so-and-so think of me? How will I appear? What will that look like? Will I be accepted? As opposed to, Lord, I'm trusting in you, and I want to be living in your 
pleasure. In fact, Isaiah warned us against having this kind of, this kind of life where we're so concerned about what people think rather than having a true relationship with him. Listen to Isaiah 29, 13. God speaks and says, These people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is but rules taught by men. So listen, if Isaiah warned us that it's possible in our lives, individually, in our families, in our parenting, in our, in our congregations, in our denominations, if we're warned to not emphasize the externals, then we should hear this warning. Now Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 6 to say, look, when you do this, when you emphasize the externals, when you're only about the behavior and not about the heart, then a couple of uh, dangerous things happen. Number one, write it down. He says, when we do this, we distance ourselves from the cross. We distance ourselves from the cross. Verse number 12 he says, as many as desire to make a fair show of the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. They emphasize this external behavior, but they only do this, verse 12 says, lest they should suffer the persecution of the cross. What, what does he mean? Remember, it was the Jewish nation that called for the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the temple guard following the orders of the high priest that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the temple guard that delivered Jesus to the Roman authorities under the direction of the Jewish religious spiritual leaders of the nation. It was the Jewish nation that, that had Christ crucified. It was the religious leaders that walked at the cross mocking Jesus, let him come down, let God save him if he'll have him, they said. They mocked Jesus on the cross and they denied his resurrection. And so now for these Jewish men and women to believe in Jesus and fully embrace the cross was to embrace what their people, their families, and their nation had condemned. And it brought great persecution. And so, I mean, when you think about it, Stephen was stoned to death for embracing the cross. Paul's life was consistently in danger because he fully embraced the cross. And so these legalizers came to these, Jew, these Gentile new converts and said to them, look, we know you've trusted in Jesus. That's great. And we have to, I believe many of them had, but we can't make so much of the cross. We've got to do this law thing too. And what happens is, if y'all listen, say Amen. When you do that, when you say, let's not make so much of the cross, let's emphasize the externals, here's what happens. You pull away from the cross, the cross is diminished in your life, and works are amplified in your life. So Paul says, be careful about emphasizing the externals. The second thing that happens when we, when we do emphasize the externals is that we sacrifice authenticity. We give up authenticity in order to boast in appearance. So when I'm all about the outside, when I'm embracing the externals, when I'm living under this legalistic uh, mindset that I've got to perform in a particular way to be accepted by a particular group, when I'm doing that, then what happens is I can live with hypocrisy so easily. Because as long as my peers, my group, my family, my congregation, my church family, as long as they're affirming me because I look good on the outside, I can live with hypocrisy till I die. 
because I'm getting so much affirmation on the outside. He says, when we do this, we sacrifice authenticity in order to be able to boast in appearances. Look at verse number 13. He says, for neither they themselves that are circumcised keep the law. You know what verse 13, let me translate it for you. He says, you know those, those legalizers who are telling you Gentiles you've got to become a Jew before you can, and keep the law before you can be a Christian? He says, you know what's true about them? They don't keep the law themselves. <laughs> They're hypocrites. <laughs> They're, They're forcing you to keep the law when they don't keep the law. But they can deal with their hypocrisy because as long as they, you do what they tell you to do, then everybody will think well of them. You see, they're boasting in appearances and giving up authenticity. So I wonder how many times we do this as followers of Jesus. I wonder how many times we emphasize the externals for the praise of men, and yet we neglect the heart which only God can see. Well, Paul says, don't be a showman, but be authentic in your faith, okay? Now, the second thing that he says, this is his final concluding thought in the book of Galatians, is that he reminds them that the cross is, uh, or the cross of Christ is our glory. The cross of Christ is our glory. Look at it, verse number 14. But God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Jesus. Now, the word glory means boast in. Uh, to rejoice in or to be proud of or to speak with great swelling words about. God forbid that I would boast in anything other than the cross of Jesus. The legalizers, well, they were content to boast in the flesh. That's verse number uh, 12, he says it, or verse 13. He says it, they, might, they want to glory in your flesh. The legalizers were content to glory in or to boast about they got circumcised, they're following the right dietary laws, they're, they're uh, showing up in high holy days, they're being good proselytized Jews who now have trusted in Jesus, but they're good Jews. And as long as they were, they were living uh, in, under that law, then they could boast in the flesh. And Paul said, stop boasting in the flesh. God forbid that I would boast in the flesh. God forbid that I would boast in anything, he says, except the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is where I want to end our time together today. I want to talk to you for just a minute about the cross and our glorying or boasting in the cross. Now, you know the story of the cross and, and, and we could take a lot of time and talk about the, the very real experience in time and space of Jesus Christ of Nazareth when he suffered and died on the cross. We could talk about where it happened. We could talk about the methodology of crucifixion. We could understand the physical anguish. We could get very detailed about the humiliation and the mental anguish and the relational separation and all of that. But I, I, I don't want us to focus on those things so much. As for just a few minutes, I want you to consider with me the glories of the cross from an eternal perspective, okay? Several that I, would, that I would suggest to you. When you think about what is glorious about the cross, the first thing that you should be reminded of and, and celebrate or boast in is the fact that the cross of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, was not an event in time that just occurred because of a, a domino effect of events. Not at all. The cross of Jesus 
was something that had been conceived in the wisdom of God before he created the worlds. Listen carefully. You should understand that the cross is so glorious because before God formed the world, in his mind, he knew that his son would come and die at Calvary. He had already determined that it would happen. In fact, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, He says to the Jewish people who had crucified Jesus, you took him with evil hands and crucified him, but it was the predetermined, he used these words, it was the predeterminate counsel of God. He says what you did, God had planned before eternity. Here's what I want you to know, that God determined that the cross would happen before creation ever occurred. That's a glorious truth. The second thing that you should consider about the glories of the cross is that when you look at the cross, you are viewing, you are seeing revealed the price, the price of God's deep love for you and me. Have you ever looked at a price tag on something and said, man, I'd really love to have that, but I can't afford it or I'm not willing to pay that price? Well, when you look at the cross, God is showing you the deep love with which he has loved you and me. Because the love that God had for us cost him the life of his son Jesus on the cross. What does John 3, 16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The cross reveals the wisdom of God in eternity, but it reveals the deep love of God. Third thing that the cross reveals is that it shows us uh, God's fierce wrath toward our sin. I want you to hear me this morning. The wrath of God toward your sin and mine is not gentle or minimal. It is fierce and angry. Sometimes we believe, well, I know, look, I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm not so bad after all. And surely, while God may not be pleased with everything about my life, surely God would kind of let me into heaven, right? I mean, a wink and a nod, hey, don't worry about it, it's okay, I know you were trying, and God will let me in. Is that that God's attitude? No, not at all. And if the cross reveals anything, it shows us this truth. Because what does Christ say on the cross? Suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by the earth. Uh, God can't receive him in heaven. He turns his back. God turns his back on his own son. And from the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you ever want to see the wrath of God, listen to Jesus all alone, separate from God, from God the Father. It reveals to us that God doesn't play with sin, that sin is not a small thing, that it is the cause of our separation, our eternal separation from God. The cross reveals the wisdom of God and the deep love of God, and it reveals the wrath of God. But fourthly, the cross reveals the immeasurable mercy of God. Because while we see Jesus alone on the cross saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? We also hear tender words of mercy. Do you remember when Jesus was being nailed, impaled upon the cross? He said these words, prayed this prayer, Father, do you know what he said? Forgive, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
What the cross reveals is that God is wise and that God is loving and that God is holy and fiercely filled with wrath toward our sin, but it also reveals that God is merciful, immeasurably so, and that the sin of any person in the world can be forgiven by the covering of Christ who died on the cross. The last thing that the glorious that is glorious about the cross of Jesus is that the cross proves the perfections of the Son of God. It proves to us the perfections of Jesus. Because in the fact that Jesus died for us and his death was sufficient. Here's the truth. If I were to die in your place to pay for your sins, that might be considered a heroic act, an act of great sacrifice, but it would not be considered a sufficient act. Because my blood is impure, it's as sinful as yours is, it could cover no sin, it could atone for no one's sins. But when Christ died, his life was perfect, he was sinless, and the cross displayed it because God accepted that sacrifice. In fact, 1 Peter 1.19 says this, For you have not been redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. A lamb without spot. So Paul comes to the Galatians and he speaks to the legalizers and he says, you're a bunch of showmen. You're only interested in the externals. You're content to glory in flesh. But I will glory in the cross, he says. In fact, maybe Paul would have said it this way. I, I can boast in flesh. I could boast in weak, faltering, foolish, selfish, prideful flesh. I could do that. Or instead, I could boast in the wise, eternal, loving, wrath-covering mercy of a perfect Savior who died on the cross for me. And Paul says, if you don't mind, I think I'll just glory in the cross and nothing else. And so this is his conclusion. You can live in a world where you emphasize the externals. You, you can live in a world where it's all about what people see and think. You can live under the bondage of a law trying to keep all the rules that you could never do and always feeling guilty. Or you can just call Galatians 1 through 6 my declaration of independence. It's not about my flesh. It's about Christ and his cross. And I will glory in that and be free. Because he goes on to say in verse number 14, because in the cross it doesn't matter if you're Jew or you're Gentile or you're rich or you're poor or you're uh, educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. If you come to Christ, you can just glory in his cross. You'll die to the old life. The world will die to you. And you will be a new creation in Christ. So praise God for the cross. Amen? Praise God for the cross. In fact, could I say it this way? Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah that God would be so eternally wise and loving and merciful and perfect to save sinners like us.